Father, we do pray and we continue to pray for these ministries, these brothers and sisters that we love. We pray that you'd bless and use them and that you would work now in our assembly as we're gathered here around your word. Open this word to us. We pray that you bring to Christ those who know not him as Savior. We pray that you would draw us who do to the joy and to the hope that is in Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And the confidence that we have through your Spirit that your promises are true and amen in Christ. We rest in that and we come now to Psalm 48 and we pray that you'd open this text to our understanding by the ministry of the Spirit and beyond mere understanding, we do pray that you'd feed us and grow us and help us to learn. But Lord, beyond that, we pray that it would draw us close to you in love, in adoration, in praise for who you are and for all that you have prepared for your people. We trust you. We will put our confidence in you and pray now that you would feed our souls upon your eternal word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. In 1995, Eden Baptist Church met in four different locations. Uh, for much of that year, half of our possessions were in storage and the other half were in a rented office space. And as anybody could imagine, whether you were with us then or not, it was a very challenging year of ministry in our church's history. But such transient displacement of a church is normal for many persecuted believers throughout this world. In 2012, you sent me to India where I trained several pastors from Myanmar that year for a couple of weeks. And one of those pastors revealed in the class how his church would find a place to rent. Their, their church was too large to meet in a home. They'd find a place to rent until they caught wind of the fact that the authorities were soon to show up and they would pack up their few belongings and leave and never come back to that rented space again. They'd find another space in their dense city and they would just continue to do this, moving from place to place. This transient displacement, this vagabond experience is challenging for churches. And I want to pause and just think of that for those churches in this world, that that's their normal. Our 1995 is their life. And with reverence for them and thoughtfulness toward the persecuted church, we say, nonetheless, what a joy was ours these last three days to spearhead renovations of Richfield Bible Church's new facility. We did some heavy lifting, and we look forward to the full report here soon, but demolition and renovation and maintenance, uh, that we trust it will all become a valuable staging ground for ministry in the years to come. Church buildings, as we know, are not necessary. Uh, sometimes they prove positively detrimental to ministry. But a permanent building can serve as a vital base of operation for a local church. And let me emphasize that word local. In a place, at a particular time, a staging ground. The church meets at that specific place. It launches ministry from an identifiable location. To some degree, no matter who we are, this is our world. We must be located 
and we do so as a church from a particular place. So let's think of this for a moment as we think and rejoice in what the Lord has done. It is very conceivable, all things falling together, that just a little more than three years from launching that group of people to form Richfield Bible Church from this church, they may be able to secure a base of operation for the spread of the gospel and the display of God's glory. A place from which they can serve and minister. It's a tremendous blessing from God. But I'm, doing, I'm going somewhere with all of this as we talk about location. We talk about a place of ministry. And that is to say this. Our small local churches are a faint and temporary reflection of the ultimate staging ground of God's glory on this planet. And I think of anyone who has read the Bible, is familiar at all with the Christian faith, if you would ask, where is ground zero? Where is the ultimate staging ground from which God displays His glory? If you had to locate it, where is it? Is it Richfield, Minnesota? Is it Burnsville, Minnesota? Is it Scotland or Rio de Janeiro? Is it Djibouti? We all know it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is that place, as one has called it, the fulcrum on which the whole universe hinges. The place, the location from which God has chosen to magnify His glory. So for centuries, remember, centuries, God patiently led Israel to the site of Mount Moriah where Jerusalem would become a city but would become something much more than just the city. It became the staging ground where God chose to locate His glory and broadcast His fame in one sense for time and eternity. Rightly understood. So Jerusalem then stands even to this day as a symbol. A symbol of the purposes of God as Savior of His people and as judge of the universe. So as we come to Psalm 48 and we see these connections, we note first of all that the city embodies God's praise. The city embodies God's praise. We note in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king. We have to be asleep not to see the emphasis on the city here, right? The, the city, the holy mountain at Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. So it's at this location, it is on this stage that God is extolled for his greatness as the king of the universe. This city we note here is beautiful for elevation, the joy of all the earth. We went through this a bit last week. We'll strengthen those ties of understanding here today, but let me describe it just a little differently. In the setting of Jerusalem, just the way that it is there, it, it, you don't come upon it and go, this is a miraculous place. You don't see it that way. But when you stop and you think about the staging ground, it is ideally situated. 
imagine a football stadium with the stands. Are they higher or lower than the field? There's no stands anywhere that I know of that are lower than the stadium, unless it's the Gophers basketball floor for a few people on the side. But imagine the stadium. It's the, the, the seats are surrounding the field. And now imagine that on that field is a very sizable stage that is lifted fairly high. So it has two effects. On the stage, there is a presentation of what is taking place there, yet around there is a a cordoning off of the rest of the world by these hills that surround Jerusalem. So if we would picture it, we're even rightly positioned here uh, to some degree, north and south. We picture it in our own building, these walls, or this, uh, this room, these walls around this room, like the hills that surround Jerusalem. And this platform, in a very similar sense to the north, there is not much elevation, it's fairly flat, but on the front side, as the temple looks over, there's these two valleys that come on either side, pointing to the temple as it rises on this stage surrounded by the mountains around. It's a perfect staging ground. It's not, there's no view of the ocean that would take your thoughts away from the temple. It's just right there as a stadium with all the focus on, the, on Mount Moriah and that, that hill. So as the temple you see here in this graphic lifted up high in those two valleys cutting around the point, it, it stands like as I'm standing here just elevated and then surrounded by the hills. We notice here again just a, a current day picture of the steep valleys that form that peak out at the front, which would be on the bottom left uh, slide, bottom left of the slide as you see it there. But then these hills around, you can see where my yellow arrow is there. It's so uh, hazy, which is very common in, in Jerusalem. But you notice the hills there, the surrounding. This is my picture of the stadium stands, just surrounding this hill as if all of the world is watching from these hills, cordoning off the view of the rest of the world. Uh, is is uh, the arrow here pointing to the Temple Mount? Pretty hard to see there, but the Temple Mount. But I'm going back much further and realize, see how much higher elevation we are just from the, this picture. And then you see the hills around. Again, you don't walk into here and go, well, this is miraculous. No, it's just hills and valleys. But as you begin to put it together, as you begin to think about it, you see that it is a very unique staging ground. Spurgeon quotes J.L. Porter who said this, No human being could be disappointed who first saw Jerusalem from Olivet. That is, you stand on the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Jerusalem, you'll remember, you'll remember that moment. They take you to the Mount of Olives and you look down over the city and you see this staging spot of the Temple Mount. Even today, it is a glorious vision, a glorious place in many ways. Now, this beautiful elevation is in the far north. That's a disputed meaning, whether it means north of Judea, the north end of Judea, or if it's speaking about the north approach, again, using this auditorium as an example, the, 
flat, direct approach to the city where much of it was built up later. We're, we're not certain what that means, but even more glorious than what we see in the city is what we hear. Verse, verse 1. We hear the praises of God's people. We hear them praising the Lord greatly, exuberantly. Verse 3 We find that within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The citadels, the city's most defensible fortifications, which stand as a powerful symbol of protection against Israel's enemies. And yet the most glorious fortress in the fortress is God himself. It's not stone defenses, but it is the Lord who is the fortress of his people. The ultimate protection is the Lord himself. And I wonder, lest we skirt past that too quickly, I wonder, do you know God as your soul's protection and fortress? Do you know him? Do you relate to him? Does your soul respond to that and say, yes, that's who he is? Do you sing glad songs of praise to God as king of kings, rejoicing in that truth? If not, it's very clear already from this psalm that the problem is not understanding. The psalm reveals this truth, that this is who God is. Our fortress, whose whose name we sing with glad songs of joy. Your problem then is not that you're ignorant of this reality, but that you are not in God. You've not entered into that fortress of trust and hope. Whether willfully, or by way of self-deception, or by way of disinterest. It's not a lack of knowledge of who God is. You have received, in some sense, all that is necessary right here. That is who He is. But where there is resistance, where there is no perception, where there is a blindness to this truth, you're not in a safe position. To stand against the king of the universe, to stand against Jerusalem, is greatly harmful. It is a position you want to leave and enter into the fortress and trust for it. And then second stanza of the poem, we see that the city subdues God's enemies. There is in some subtle sense here already the understanding in the psalm that we're either with God as our fortress or we are fighting against God's fortress as our fortress. So one or the other, but now that is made explicit here as we come to verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded and they were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them, their anguish as of a woman in labor. For behold, verse 4, the kings assembled and they came on together. The kings are not assembling, they're not coming on together toward Jerusalem to have afternoon tea in a cafe. They are coming on together as armies taking up positions furiously storming the walls of Jerusalem in order to destroy her people, in order to destroy her king, the Lord Almighty. 
But as they rush upon Jerusalem, they are stopped in their tracks. Verses 5 and 6. They're astounded. They panic. They take flight. There is anguish that comes upon them that's equated with childbirth. These opponents of the king and fortress of his people storm the walls of Jerusalem with hostile rage. They're intent on killing, conquering, and plundering. But suddenly, just as fast as they rush upon the city, in raging fury, they turn to flee in terrified, gut-wrenching fear as they're running as fast as their little feet will take them out of there. This terrorized retreat symbolically pictures the destiny of all who oppose God. There's a symbolism here. There, are, there is also a reality behind the symbolism. But the picture is of those running against God, opposing Him, and then finding themselves in terrified retreat. By the east wind, verse 7, you shattered the ships of Tarshish, as there's no history of God sinking the renowned ships of Tarshish in the Old Testament. The, the idea is, again, probably figurative. But God sinks his enemies like a violent east gale, overturns the grandest ships, and buries them in the depths of the sea. There's no ship that's a match for the fury of the sea, even to our own day. You can travel north this beautiful summer and see that there's 350 ships or, or so at the bottom of Lake Superior. The ships that man can build cannot withstand the fury of the storm. And it's a figurative sense here then that God will overturn his enemies. He will subdue them. They will run in fear. They will be sunk with no hope. And God's people then, in the face of this victory, rejoice. Verse 8, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. There were moments in Israel's history where this subduing of enemies took place in specific ways. We see that with the Assyrian army as God takes out, perhaps in some sort of illness, plague or the like, 185,000 soldiers and there's not even a fight. And I guarantee that anybody anywhere near who thought about attacking Jerusalem after that ran in fear. There's Hezekiah singing victory as he heads east against the alliance of kings and never has to fight. The singers go out in front of the army and as they arrive, the three allied forces have all killed each other and run in fear, any surviving. So there's times in Israel's history where this literally took place. The enemies ran away from God. It was clear that he had sunk their ship there was no hope for them. But there were many other times, of course, in which Israel was not victorious because of her sin. But in seeing the victory of God, and again, I'm stressing here that also symbolically of the greater victory of God over his enemies, his people rejoice. What we have heard, 
That is coming from the past generation, telling us about the wonders of God and His victories. We have heard this from our, from our fathers and mothers, our grandfathers and grandmothers, as they have taught us the ways of the Lord. What we have heard about, again, see verse 8, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. Notice in the, the word we have seen and the contrast with verse 5. The enemies of God see the fortifications. They see the situation of the city. They see God as the Lord of hosts and they run. But we see and rejoice. Because yes, this is God being God. Being the God that we have come to know from the generations that have gone before. So what we've heard about, now we see ourselves. We taste it. The city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We've seen it with our own eyes. Now someone is sure to step in here and object and say, wait a minute, you've got to be kidding me. Does Israel not realize how often they were defeated in battle? Is this not just wishful thinking? Does God truly protect His people? Is He protecting the church in Myanmar that we just talked about? Is He protecting them as a fortress? Well, let's remember, it's a long story, and the last chapter is yet to be written. But make no mistake, the city of God will be established forever. In the end, God will subdue all His enemies and all the enemies of His people. In the end, He will wipe away every tear, and His city will house His worshiping people in total victory over every enemy. This is the assurance that we have from the Word of God that gives us new life in His name. But again, the objection can come back. Well, anybody can say anything. What proof do you have of this? What proof do you have that God will be the conquering king in the end and protect his people and be with them forever in his holy city? What proof is there? It's just a wild claim. Any prophet can say anything they want. What do these sons of Korah know? Well, from the position where we stand, how much assurance we have that they could not even fully understand. Because centuries later, in this very city, now more built up, now more populated, now under the rule of occupying Rome, a Jewish rabbi is buried in a borrowed tomb. He had demonstrated the power of God on earth. There was no question about that. He wasn't simply talking. He was acting in the power of God. As he healed the sick. As he raised up the lame and gave sight to the blind. As he stilled the sea and created food and raised the dead. There was no question that he had come from God, but there was also no question now that he had been defeated. That God was not his fortress in the end as he succumbed to death. But this rabbi, this savior, had also prophesied that he would rise from the dead, and he did on cue 
parts of three days later, just as he promised that he would. Then his resurrection appearances convinced skeptics. People who were opposed to him came to follow him, and people that had followed him that were living in abject fear began to proclaim his resurrection to the world. To the point of death. I mean, when you've concocted a lie, and now you are being asked to stand on your lie at point of death, most people wise up right about then and move on. But his followers all stood to the death saying, He is risen. He's risen as he said. He has defeated death. And it's in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the tomb that God puts Satan and rebellious sinners and death itself on notice. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no power in this universe, on this planet, or anywhere else in heaven or hell that can stand against the purposes of God. He will win the fight against death, disease, and sin. He's the conquering king, and his city will be established forever. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, literally bodily from the tomb, is the witness that what he says will be. In verses 9 through 14, we witness then a third description of the city from the standpoint of various locations around the city that broadcasts God's worth. Verse 9, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. In the midst of the temple, the image shifts now from uh, the battle to meditation. From the height of conflict now to the quiet confines of God's temple on Mount Zion, where the psalmist considers the steadfast love of the Lord. That is the loyal, persistent, covenant love, the Hesed of God for his people. He meditates and thinks upon this is who God is. He is the king of the universe, but he is also the one who loves his people in intimacy and faithfulness. And in a parallel sense, this is why we assemble on the Lord's day. Gathering together as the church provides a unique way of meditating upon the Lord and who he is, and indeed upon his steadfast, loyal love to us as his people. We gather as the household of faith to meditate on who he is. And so the psalmist does here in verse 9. But at verse 10, we move from the temple now to the nations. Verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. The praise and righteous works of God are proclaimed to the farthest reaches of the earth. It is ironic to choose an insignificant nation, Israel, as the means by which God will broadcast his glories to the nations. He chooses the weakest and the smallest 
to announce through this narrow channel his greatness and his goodness to his people. But God's improbable ways are always wise. And Israel would never take pride legitimately in her numbers or in her power. Eventually, by God's intervention through this nation, the message of glorious salvation and justice will reach the Gentiles, will reach the entire world. And by God's grace, that message has reached us here as we have sung of his glories on the other side of the planet. The message has reached us. We hear such loud and impassioned calls for justice these days, and justice is necessary. But may we as Christ's followers not lose sight of the final justice that was purchased by the Son of all righteousness, who unites then Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, people of every ethnicity in His body, the church united through the reconciling work of Christ. The ultimate righteous justice this world is so desperate to find is in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And it is free. It has been purchased. It is there for all to receive. From the temple to the nations. Now back, verse 11, to the region. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. The daughters of Judah, most commentators would agree, is a reference to the cities and the villages surrounding the temple area. Surrounding Jerusalem. May they also rejoice. This song is just reverberating through the hills as the daughters, the cities and villages of Judah rejoice. They are to broadcast the joy of knowing God and celebrating His justice. And then in the region, now back from that region around, now to the city itself again. Notice verse 12. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The, the subtle turn of emphasis that we saw in verse 3. So in verses 1 and 2, it's so obviously about Jerusalem, but where does it end? It ends subtly and gloriously on God, who is our fortress. And so it is here. Walk around Zion. Look at her towers, her ramparts, her citadels. Look at the fortresses of this great city. Nearly impregnable, it would seem. But that's not where it lands. It's not a word of praise to the city, but it's a word of praise to God. This is our God. The city embodies God. From this city is broadcast His glories. And so we see a parallel to the meditation in the temple. Here a meditation walking about the city. And the grand message again is not its power, but the power of God. He will guide us forever. The Hebrew, you might see there a marginal note, is unto death or as long as we live, which for God's people is indeed forever in His presence. And so the translation, I think, is faithful 
at least in its sense. Let's think about this just for a moment. The city is used symbolically of the final conquest of God as king of the universe. The psalmist looks to the city as the specific location on earth where God chose to embody his glory. But the psalmist also sees through the city to a future day when all that Jerusalem embodies will be fulfilled in a richer and fuller way. There's a grandeur to the literal city. There is a grandeur to the history of this city, this location. But there is in this something that points yet forward to what is fuller and richer and more filled with splendor. This is a future day when the enemies of Christ will be actual rebels bent on destruction. So Psalm 48 is no picture of heaven. Yet the psalm also pictures the total triumph of the king over all the enemies of his people. So it pictures more than our day on this side of the cross. And there are some commentators who run from Psalm 48 and simply apply to the church and the church's life today. But I think we should see past even that to the ultimate end of this all as we read in Revelation 21 this morning. The psalm is a picture of the total triumph of the king over all the enemies of his people. So it pictures more than our day on this side of the cross. In this earthly city, the psalmist sees the vision of a grand day when Christ will reign from Jerusalem's throne, when the nations will be subdued, and when, as the prophets foretell, the nations will stream to this throne in glad homage. As God chose Jerusalem as ground zero for the display of His glory on earth, so He will locate His glory there in a yet greater way in the future. But from that beam of light flowing there to that ultimate day, the final new Jerusalem, there is the church, the household of God, which displays His glory, which proclaims His praise. So history continues to repeat itself in a particular trajectory. It will repeat itself, but always in continuing more glorious fulfillment. So this fulfillment is so real to the mind of the psalmist, he seems almost to lose perspective of the present in light of that glorious day that is yet future to us. The temple on earth always mirrored the grander temple in heaven, as we learn in the book of Hebrews, for instance, 8 through 10. And one day the two will merge, as we read here again in Revelation 21, the heavenly Jerusalem descending where heaven and earth meet and where ultimate fulfillment is realized forever. And on that glorious day, God's people will know that this is God, our God, forever and ever. And it will take us an eternity to celebrate this reality. So I ask you, is your name written in the ledger recording the citizens of this kingdom?
It's a kingdom past. It's a kingdom present. It is a kingdom future. Is your name recorded in that kingdom future? If so, rejoice in song with God's people as the household of God. If not, I would encourage you to turn today in repentant trust upon the Savior who died to redeem his people and is preparing for us a dwelling place in the new Jerusalem. Call upon him for salvation in obedient faith, for today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. We are grateful, Father, for your goodness to us. We are grateful for the promises that you reveal in your word. We are grateful for the conviction that comes to us as we consider how small our focus, how earthy our affections. Draw us to you as our God and King. Draw us to you as the one who holds the future in your hands and will save your people from all their enemies in the end. Lord, bring to Christ the Savior those who are yet separated from your love, separated from knowing you through the new birth, we pray through Jesus. Amen.